Well, go ahead and take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1. What a joy it is to dive back into the Word of God together every Lord's Day. Revelation chapter 1. We began our series a few weeks ago studying this book and And so far, every time I've gone to the passage that I'm about to preach on, and I'm thinking through uh, the elements of that text, uh, thus far I've gone back to literary works, to other uh, books that I've read, to uh, other uh, pieces of literature that have encouraged my heart. And this morning, this text that we're going to look at this morning just instantly reminded me of the Chronicles of Narnia. And I, I went back and I reread the beginning, the, the dedication at the very outset of the series in the first book from C.S. Lewis to a, a woman named Lucy Barfield. And he wrote this. My dear Lucy, I wrote this story for you, but when I began it, I had not realized that girls grow quicker than books. As a result, you were already far too old for fairy tales, and by the time it is printed and bound, you will be older still. Someday you will be old enough to start reading fairy tales again. You can take them down from the upper shelf, dust it off, and and then tell me what you think of it. I shall probably be too deaf to hear and too old to understand a word you say, but I shall still be your affectionate godfather, C.S. Lewis. What did Lewis mean when he said, someday you will be old enough to start reading fairy tales again? I think he's dropping a hint that there is much more to the fantasy than young eyes can perceive. Kids love stories. They love fantasy, but they love them because they can't decipher between what is real and what is make-believe. My kids ask me all the time, Dad, can you tell us a story? Dad, tell us a story. Dad, tell us a story. And I I love those opportunities because I know that they're going to become less frequent as my kids grow up. But then one day, they will be old enough to understand the meaning behind the fantasy, the meaning behind the story. In C.S. Lewis's fifth book in the Chronicles of Narnia, The Horse and His Boy, He chronicles a story of a young boy named Shasta who is given an ominous task to warn uh, the king, King Loon, about an impending attack from the armies of Tash. His journey is hard, dangerous, violent. At one point, he finds himself alone, riding a horse that's not obeying his commands. He's attempting to make his way to a treacherous mountain pass through the mountain pass. And it's absolutely dark. He can't see anything. He's cold. He's afraid. He's hungry. He has no strength left. And he says this, I do think that I must be the most unfortunate boy that ever lived in the whole world. Everything goes right for everyone except for me. And he feels so sorry for himself that tears begin rolling down his face. But something puts a stop to them immediately. He's suddenly frightened. Though perfectly dark and unable to see anything, He feels the presence of something incredibly large walking beside him. Can't even hear footprints, footsteps, but he knows there's something there. Finally, when he can stand it no longer, he whispers into the night, Who are you? The reply comes in a soft voice that is both large and deep. One 
who has waited long for you to speak. Shasta asks nervously, you're not something dead, are you? The great creature then exhales so that Shasta might feel the warm breath on his face and his hands. There, it said, that's not the breath of a ghost. And the deep voice continued, tell me your sorrows. Feeling a little reassured, Shasta began speaking of all of his complaints. He had never known his father or his mother. His upbringing had been severe and abusive. The journey itself was far worse than he ever imagined that it could be. I do not call you unfortunate, the large voice said. But Shasta disagreed. Don't you think it was bad luck to meet so many lions on the journey? The voice replied, no, there was only one lion. What on earth do you mean, Shasta shot back? I just told you that there were at least two the first night. There was only one, the voice clarified. But he was swift of foot. How do you know? Shasta asked. I was that lion, the voice said. And at that point, the voice began to recount one by one all of the events on Shasta's journey, reassuring him that though Shasta could not see him, he had always been there, right by his side, even in the most dangerous of circumstances. Who are you? Shasta asked. And for those of us who have read the Chronicles of Narnia from the very first book, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, that lion, this is Aslan, the king of kings. And after Shasta asks, who are you? The darkness surrounding the lion turns from black to gray and then from gray to white, a white that is so brilliant it hurts Shasta's eyes. He can't even look anymore. But as he starts to peek through his eyelids, he sees passing beside him taller than even his horse, a great lion. He was both terrifying and beautiful. He can't even see, Shasta can't even lift up his own head. He falls down, he stoops low, and the tongue of the lion licks Shasta's forehead. And then in a great instant, the lion is gone. In a moment, in a flash, the lion is gone. Was this all a dream? Shasta wondered. Then he looks down and he sees in the grass next to him a giant footprint where a paw was placed. And he realizes this wasn't a dream. The lion was here. He is real. And he was with me all along the way. The journey is far from over for Shasta. We're only in the middle of the book. The danger is still very real, but something has changed for Shasta. He realizes that this is not only where he should be, but now this is where he wants to be. And what has made all the difference for him is meeting the great lion, the king, who would be with him and see him through to the end, just as he had always done every time before. So I ask you the question that C.S. Lewis mentioned in his dedication page. Are you old enough to see through the story? Are you old enough to see through that fantasy? Being a Christian is not an exemption from the greatest difficulties and violent dangers associated with the gospel journey that we are all on. 
It's rather the guarantee of the presence of the great lion from journey's start to journey's end. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He's always beside us. And that, I believe, is the very reason why this book before us has been written. The book of Revelation was written to Christians in the midst of severe persecution to remind them, Jesus, he has not forsaken you. He has not abandoned you. He is with you. Allegiance to the gospel will always call us in one form or another to suffer. But Jesus will always be with us in our suffering. And he will prevail and we along with him. This letter is really like what Richard Baxter, an old Puritan, said about himself as a preacher, preaching as a dying man to dying men. These are literally dying churches. People are being slaughtered because of the gospel. It's written, the book of Revelation is written during the reign of Domitian after Nero and Vespasian. This is a very terrifying period in Roman history if you call yourself a Christian. And the people of God do not need to be paralyzed with fear as they live in a hostile world. And even though they face martyrdom, even in the Colosseum of Rome, God has installed His King, Jesus Christ, and He will win. John Stott said it this way, We do not need a detailed forecast of future events, which has to be laboriously deciphered, but rather a vision of Jesus Christ. So we're not going to decipher all of these different aspects of the future, and that's not the point of this book. We need a vision of Jesus Christ to cheer the faint, to encourage the weary. And John's desire is not to satisfy our curiosity about the future, but to stimulate our faithfulness in the present. That's the point of this book. And I believe that these verses that we're going to look at this morning just highlight that ever more precisely. We looked last week at the entirety of the book that Revelation has written to reveal the glory of Jesus to his slaves for their blessing. But we're going to see this morning in these short verses that the triune God who reigns victorious and supreme also himself gives us grace and peace. So let's read these verses. Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 and 5 this morning. John To the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is coming, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. Father, I pray that you would take us deeper into the glories of Calvary this morning. You would give us a majestic vision of who you are. None of us has an appropriate view of the grandeur and the majesty of God. And so, Father, I pray that you would graciously reveal to us the encouragement that was meant to be given to these seven churches, that it would be given to us this morning. 
There are enough people in this room that there are some that we know have to be going through suffering and trials. And maybe like Shasta, they wonder, are you there? Who are you? What are you doing? Am I alone? And Father, I pray that this morning you would reveal to all of our hearts an encouraging revelation of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we ask you to open our eyes to behold these things. We cannot learn them on our own. We need supernatural help. So give us supernatural help, we pray. In the name of Jesus, our great high priest. Amen. This morning we will see three ways the triune God gives us grace and peace. Three ways that the triune God gives us grace and peace. Let's begin in verse 4. This is actually the salutation of the letter. John uh, is writing an ancient letter. This is a letter in olden days. And ancient letters named their writers up front at the beginning. So John says, it's me writing. John, I'm writing. And I'm writing to seven churches that are in Asia Minor. We're going to look at these seven churches in a lot more detail. So for now, just uh, press pause on that. We will come back to those churches when we get to chapters 2 and 3. But he's writing to churches, he's writing to believers, he's writing to believers who are in the midst of persecution, who are in the midst of compromise, who are in the midst of difficulties and suffering. And in the midst of their persecution and suffering, John says two words, I want to give you, because of who God is, grace and peace. John knows that we can be given grace and that we can understand peace because of the vision that he's writing. John knows that we can have grace and we can have peace in the midst of our hardest moments because of what's going to follow in this book, because what John knows is coming. He knows we have been given grace and peace. Grace represents our standing before God. Through Jesus Christ, God has given us grace. He has not given us what we deserve and has graciously given us something that we do not deserve. We deserve punishment, and he has taken that punishment and not given it to us, but given it to Jesus. And we do not deserve to be a part of his family, but he has given us the title of son and daughter because of the work of Christ. Peace refers to our experience that even in the midst of our suffering and sorrows, we can have peace. But let's ask John, how can we have grace and peace? How can we know that these are realities? How can we stand firm in the midst of suffering and trials? How can we be given grace and peace? Reason number one. Because of God the Father. Because of God the Father. From Him who is and who was and who is coming. Who is and who was and who is coming. Now, we have to stop right there. Who is and who was and who is coming. Why does He say is and was and is coming? Normally, it's was, is, is to come. Was, is, is to come. But John doesn't say it that way. John begins by saying, God is. Why does he do that? Because he is stressing the, if I can use this word, isness of God. The presence of God in the here and now. Might be easy for these Christians to think, well, he sure was back with Moses. He sure was back with Joshua, but he is not now with me. And John says, oh, he is. He is with you. He has always been with you. He is. This is what we need to hear when we're under attack. We need to know that even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, God is. 
with us. Deuteronomy 31, verse 6, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. That is a blood-bought promise for every single believer. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, restates that, quotes that. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. John says he is, and he was. We can see the entirety of the Bible tells us who God was in the past, and he is unchanging. Who he was is who he is, because our God does not change. We talk a lot about the things that our God cannot do. It is very good for us that our God cannot tell a lie, that our God cannot sin, and that our God cannot change. In theology, we call that immutability. He is unchanging. And because of that, we can scour through the pages of Scripture and we can see who our God was in the past, and therefore we know who He is for us in the present. But John doesn't stop there. He says He is and He was and He is coming. He is to come. Normally, whenever you see this construction of a description of God the Father, it's He is, He was, or He was, He is, and He will be meaning his existence. He was, he is, and he will be. He was, he is, and he will be, but not here. John uses a different word. He was, or he is, he was, and he's coming. Literally, it's he's coming. My Bible says he is to come, but it's literally he's on his way. So not only is he present with you right now in an invisible sense, but he's coming to get you. And we were told in the opening paragraph, it's going to be soon. (laughs) The time is near. It's at hand. He's coming to get you. So how can we have grace and peace in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our trials, in the midst of persecution? Because we know that who God was in the past, he is now, and he's present with us now, and he's coming to get us, and he will destroy our enemies, and he will bring us safely home. That will infuse a suffering believer with hope, with grace, and with peace. Number one, God the Father. Number two, second reason we can have grace and peace is God the Holy Spirit. Middle of verse four, God the Holy Spirit. From the seven spirits who are before his throne. Seven spirits. This does not mean that there are nine people, persons in the Trinity. There are some people who would preach that. That's not true. This does not mean seven spirits plus son is eight and father is nine. No. What is seven referring to? Why why seven? A couple of reasons. Number one, it's connecting us to the seven churches. He just said to the seven churches, verse 4, that are in Asia, and the seven spirits. So we're connecting the spirit to the work in the churches. Uh, The churches are not uh, devoid of the Holy Spirit's presence and not devoid of the Holy Spirit's power. And more than that, I think that's one aspect, but more than that, remember we talked about the greater you understand the Old Testament, the greater you will understand the book of Revelation. You need the Old Testament to understand Revelation. Wherever wherever your confusion is in Revelation, which here's one place we're confused, wherever your confusion is in Revelation, it's because of a misunderstanding or a confusion or just flat out not knowing some part of the Old Testament. So let's go to a couple places. Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 11. Again, I think that the original recipients of this letter, when they hear seven spirits, they would not not 
blink an eye about that. They wouldn't bat an eye over, what does this mean? They know exactly what it means. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. 7 is a reference to the sevenfold aspect of who the Holy Spirit is and what the Holy Spirit does. This is Isaiah 11, verse 2. The Spirit, number one, of the Lord will rest on him. The Spirit, number two, of wisdom. Number three, understanding. Number four, of counsel. Number five, of strength. Number six, of knowledge. And number seven, and the fear of the Lord. Seven aspects of who the Holy Spirit is and what the Holy Spirit does. So we have that passage that we could turn to. You also have Zechariah. Turn over a couple books to Zechariah chapter 4. Zechariah chapter 4, verse 1. An angel is speaking to Zechariah. He roused me as a man is awakened from his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? Verse 2, I, I said, I see and behold a lampstand, all of gold with its bowl on top of it and its seven lamps on it with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps which are on top of it. Also two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl, the other on its left side. And I said to the angel who was speaking to me, what are these, my Lord? And he says in verse 5, do you not know what these are? And Zechariah said, no, that's why I asked you the question. <laughs> what are these? What are these? And his answer is very simply in verse 6, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel saying, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Zerubbabel is going to rebuild the temple. The temple will be rebuilt, a place of worship of God, a place where the people of God can gather together. And it's not going to be built by Zerubbabel, but by the Spirit. Not by the power of man, but by the power of God. But you see, the, the lamp is a sevenfold lamp, has seven stands inside of it. I believe in the New Testament we see God dwelling with His people, right? He is wanting to dwell with His people through the presence of the Holy Spirit. We no longer worship in one location. Jesus told us in John chapter 4, it's not this mountain or that mountain, this temple or this temple, but it's going to be throughout the entirety of the world. Wherever believers gather together, there God is growing their community, growing their family, growing His temple. Not by our might, not by our power, but by the Holy Spirit. I believe those two passages, Isaiah 11 and Zechariah 4, would have been ringing in their mind. The original recipients would have gotten this text and they would have said, oh, I understand what John is telling us, what God is telling us through John. Number one, the sevenfold aspect of who the Spirit is, His working and His presence and His power in our midst. But number two, we're not going to build the church. God Himself is going to do that through His Holy Spirit. We're not going to overcome or persevere as a Christian by our might, by our power, but by the Holy Spirit. Another reason why it's seven, you can go back to Revelation chapter one, seven spirits. I am not a numbers guy. That doesn't mean mathematically. I'm not that either. But I'm not a numbers guy when it comes to the Bible. There are people that are big into secret codes in the text or hidden messages in the Bible. And so every time they come to a number, they think it's some hidden agenda, some really cool, mysterious code that they're going to uh, figure out on their own. I'm not, I'm not into that, mostly because almost all of those aren't true. But here's a number that has significance. Here's a number that has significance. And most of you know the significance. The number of seven, number means completeness, fullness, 
For instance, uh, in our culture, we have numbers that represent completeness or fullness. If uh, whoever picked up the donuts today said to me, you know, I got a box of 11 donuts, I would wonder, why 11? <laughs> Did you get 12 and you ate one? <laughs> and so you just said you got 11? We just instinct donuts equals a dozen. Donut equals 12. That's not because 12 is some magical number. That's just the number that's associated with the fullness of donuts. God made it that way. That's the way it is. Fullness of donuts. If I told you that I went to my nine-year high school reunion, you go, you must have been really tight with your high school buddies to celebrate nine and not ten. In sports, a hat trick in hockey is three. A triple crown is three. A triple triple in basketball is three. Even the way we advertise things, 99 cents. That's just a number that's associated with a lot of the things that we're going to see. In a Hebrew mindset, the number seven would have represented to them fullness or completion. I need to prove that to you. I could just be making that up. So I need to prove that to you. I'm going to do that quickly, but hopefully somewhat comprehensively. Creation was seven 24-hour days to complete the week of creation, seven. Anyone who touches Cain, they would get a sevenfold vengeance of God. Noah was to take seven pairs of clean animals onto the ark. Jacob worked for seven years for Laban. A bow of submission in the Old Testament was seven bows before somebody. Seven years are in the cycle of the Jewish calendar. Seven days was the length of the Passover celebration where you wouldn't eat unleavened bread. Seven days was the initial mourning period of the death of a loved one. Seven lamps in the tabernacle to represent the full presence of God. A new priest, when he was ordained, would wear his ephod for seven days. The altar was prepared beforehand for seven days. The blood was sprinkled on the altar seven times. Seven days of quarantine in the Old Testament. Seven days of walking around Jericho in the Old Testament. Ruth, as we just studied, was better than seven sons to Naomi. Solomon dedicated the temple with two feasts that both ran seven days. Eliphaz told Job that if God's people fell seven times, the Lord would rescue them seven times, meaning the Lord would always come to the rescue of his people. The psalmist says he rises seven times during the day to worship God. There are seven sins that God hates. There are seven beatitudes that Jesus gives. There are seven times that Peter asks, should we forgive somebody? The story of the Sadducees that they made up of that woman uh, who had all the husbands who died, who's going to be married to whom in the afterlife? Seven husbands, seven baskets uh, collected after the feeding of the 5,000, seven deacons to begin the church age. The number of seven is very, the number seven is very important in the Bible, and it represents completeness, fullness. It's not mystical, it's not magical, there's no hidden code. It's just a representation in a Jewish mind that they would hear it and understand complete, full, not lacking anything. And if that's hard for you to grasp, because we don't have the number seven representing that, then just swap it out for a dozen. <laughs> There's a dozen things that God hates, all right? The, this is the fullness of his hatred towards sin. That's all it means. So, when John tells us that the seven spirits are before the throne, we are seeing the full and complete power of God through the Holy Spirit working in his church. How are we to be given grace and peace? We are to be given grace and peace through God the Father who is, who was, and is coming. And also, we are given grace and peace because of the fullness of the presence and power of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. 
Number three, we can have grace and peace because of God the Son. Notice the end of chapter four, or the end of verse four in chapter one. The Holy Spirit is before the throne of God the Father. The throne. We're going to come back to this word over and over again, but God is on his throne. He rules with his feet up. He's not wondering, oh, what's happening? I, be- I better step in. Oh, this was not what I thought was going to happen. He is sitting there and he is ruling with his feet up, saying, this is going exactly the way that I knew it was going to go, that I'm orchestrating it to go, and I'm on my way to save my people. Number three, God the Son. This is verse five. And from Jesus Christ. Why does John save Jesus for last? Normally, we use the formula Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. John changes that, Father, Holy Spirit, and Son, because he's going to elaborate on the Son. The vision of Jesus Christ at the end of chapter one, the revelation of Jesus Christ, the whole point of this book, he's going to elaborate on the Son. But here, For the beginning of his elaboration, he's going to tell us three aspects of Jesus' amazing ministry to us. Number one, he's a faithful witness. Number two, he is the firstborn of the dead. And number three, he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. He is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now, these titles are not just made up by John. These aren't just titles made up by him. Once again, he is alluding to, he's grabbing language from the Old Testament. And the language that he's grabbing from the Old Testament is actually in Psalm 89. So go ahead and turn to Psalm 89. Psalm 89 gives us the language of these three titles that John is using as he refers to Jesus. Jesus is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Once again, I... I believe in a Jewish mind, hearing those three titles, they would have gone back to Psalm 89. Psalm 89 is a celebratory psalm. It's a song that was sung to remind us of the Davidic covenant, the covenant that God made with David, 2 Samuel chapter 7. It was written in response to that amazing covenant, that God will bring about his kingdom through the line of David. The Messiah would come through the line of David, and of his kingdom there will never be an end. So Psalm 89 is all about a responsive praise to that amazing covenant that God made. So let's start with the first title, Faithful Witness. Drop down in Psalm 89 to verse 35. Verse 35, once I have sworn by my holiness, and I will not lie to David, this is again the covenant that he made with David, his descendants shall endure forever, and his throne is the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, and the witness in the sky is faithful. Faithful witness. Always speaking the truth, always being there, always representing what is true. So language is borrowed from the Old Testament, but is taken and specifically applied to the person and work of Jesus. And what I love about this is John begins by telling us Jesus is a faithful witness. This book, uh, Revelation, is all about being a witness. Even in the face of persecution, in the face of death, our model is Jesus, who was a faithful witness unto death. He did not change the truth. He did not sugarcoat the truth. He spoke the truth in love, and he was killed for it, just as his followers were being killed in the seven churches in Asia Minor. 
And John says, you can have grace and peace because you have a witness who was your forerunner. You have somebody who pioneered the way. You have someone who is faithful unto death who will give you the grace and the peace to be faithful unto death as well. He's a faithful witness. Number two, he's the firstborn of the dead. This is verses uh, 26 and 27. 26 says, he will cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. I also shall make him my firstborn. Now again, John's going to take that title and say it's the firstborn of the dead. And we see this title elsewhere in the New Testament. Uh, Colossians chapter 1, uh, Acts chapter 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The firstborn, he is the heir, the inheritor of all those living and dead, especially those who die in Christ. He's the firstborn of all who have ever been resurrected. He's the premier one to be resurrected. So he's the faithful witness and he was killed for it, but he didn't stay dead. He's reminding these New Testament believers, Jesus was killed for believing the truth and teaching the truth about himself. You too are being killed for believing in the truth. But Jesus didn't stay dead. God the Father raised him up and God the Father will raise you up as well. You will not stay dead. He was the firstborn. That's speaking of chronology. Chronologically, Jesus was the first, not the first to be raised from the dead because there were many others, Lazarus, the uh, Jairus' daughter that was raised from the dead. But Jesus is the first to be raised from the dead and never to die again. He's the first to be raised from the dead and never to die again. He conquered death. As we'll see later in chapter 1 of Revelation, he holds the keys of death and of Hades in his hand. And Daniel chapter 12 is another passage we could go to. We don't have time, but in Daniel chapter 12, we're told that others in the, the covenant community of grace will also be raised with him, will follow along with the Messiah into a never-ending kingdom. He's the firstborn from the dead. Lastly, number three, not only faithful witness and firstborn from the dead, but again, Psalm 89, verse 27, end of verse 27, the highest of the kings of the earth, the highest of all kings. John just says, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Once again, a title taken from Psalm 89, the the Davidic covenant, the Messiah is going to reign on the throne of David, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Even though he died, his kingdom will last on forever because he did not stay dead, and he has conquered all of the kings, and he owns all of their kingdoms. This speaks of his supremacy, authority over everyone. We sang, all glory, all power is yours alone. Jesus is the King of kings. All earthly thrones are owned by Him. There is only one ultimate, final, heavenly throne. And once again, this would have been so encouraging for these believers. Living in Asia Minor, living in uh, Roman provinces, in every single town there would have been an altar that was erected to Caesar, And once a year, you would have to take a pinch of incense to renew your license in the economy of that province and take the incense and place it on the altar to Caesar and say, Caesar is Lord. You'd have to put the incense on the altar, Caesar is Lord. You'd get your license renewed. You'd be able to be a part of the functioning economy. You'd be able to uh, buy and and trade and sell. And if you said, I'm not going to be a part of that. Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. If you did not do that, you would be an outcast of that society. At the very least, you would not be able to buy and sell and be involved in the commerce. You would probably also lose your home. 
At the worst, you would be imprisoned and put to death for sedition, for wanting to go against Caesar. What do you think the recipients of this letter, living under that threat, you must declare Caesar is Lord, what do you think their response would have been when their pastor got up in front of them with the scroll that John had written and he reads out, Jesus is the ruler of every king. Jesus owns Caesar. I don't think that they would have, you know, with their little moleskin notebook going, no, he's king of kings. Good. I think that they would have shouted, my brother didn't die in vain. My grandfather who said, no, Jesus is Lord. He didn't die in vain. Jesus is Lord. Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. And we will stay the course because he is on his throne. I think that the the whole congregation would have been shouting, we don't have to worship Caesar. We don't have to bow the knee to Caesar. Jesus is alive. Yes, he was killed, but he didn't stay dead. He is alive, and he is on a throne, and he is king. Can you imagine the praise that would have erupted when that sentence was read? He's king. These three titles of Jesus, they're also in beautiful chronological order of Jesus' earthly ministry. He was a faithful witness when he was on the earth, and he was killed for it. He was raised from the dead, And now he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he has been given the name that Philippians 2 tells us he would be given, that he is Lord. And since we are his followers and we follow in his footsteps, we live out this exact chronology as well. It has been done before us. We've been given a pattern. We must be a faithful witness even unto death. But even if we die, when we die, we will not stay dead. We will be raised to newness of life. This is why Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, he never dies. So we must be faithful witnesses here on the earth. We may be killed for it, and if we're not, we will ultimately all die. But we will be raised. And when we're raised, Jesus is going to tell us that we are a kingdom and a priesthood, and we get to rule and reign with him on the earth. We're never going to be the king of kings. That's Jesus. But we will be governors, we will be rulers, we will be those that will, under our king's rule, reign along with him. Since we follow in his footsteps, since we know he has done this perfectly before us, we know that he knows exactly what it's like. He knows exactly what it's like to be a faithful witness, to be resurrected from the dead, and to rule and to reign. And he gives us exactly what we need to accomplish those things as well. Grace and peace. No one gets to heaven who does not persevere in faithful allegiance to the gospel. And the reason why anyone does persevere in faithful allegiance to the gospel is because we serve a faithful God who supplies us daily with grace and peace through the Father, the ministry of the Spirit, and through Jesus Christ our Savior. Now that would be enough to make our hearts soar. That would be enough to resound in praise. But John doesn't end there. In fact, John's going to give us a little bit of a parenthetical statement about our Savior. We're only going to get to half of it this morning, but we'll finish this out next week, uh, next Lord's Day, Lord willing, in verse 6. 
He says, to him, he's going to bring praise into the mix here in verse 5. He's the faithful witness, he's the firstborn of the dead, and he's the ruler of the kings of the earth. And he, John cannot move on from that without praising God for who he is. And so he says, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, the first part of that statement in verse 5, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. This is the gospel story. So much could be said about this, but I just want to point your attention to one thing that just captivated my heart this last week. John writes, Jesus loves us, present tense, and released us, past tense. He loves us in this moment and released us thousands of years ago. Why does John do that? Why does the Holy Spirit write this? Why is this a perfect description of Jesus? Because if you want to know that God absolutely loves you, you can look in history to the cross. These believers might be wondering, as their siblings are killed for the gospel, as their family is ripped apart because of the gospel, they might be wondering, does God care about us? Is he watching us? Is he acting? Is he just far away? And does God love me? And John says, oh, you don't have to wonder about that. Because once and for all, he proved his love for you. His present ongoing love is proven by his past completed action of dying and saving us. John says in 1 John 3, Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us. What wondrous love is this? The hymn writer says, Oh my soul, what wondrous love is this? It caused the Lord of bliss to bear my shame and my scorn. What wondrous love is this? Hallelujah, what a Savior, man of sorrows. What a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners, that's you and me, to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Brothers and sisters, if you wonder about, question, wrestle with, doubt whether or not God loves you, first of all, that's absolutely okay. Jude tells us, have mercy on those who are doubting. May we never be a church, ever, for one second, who would be a place where somebody could come and say, I'm struggling with doubting if God loves me, and we just scoff at that. How could you struggle with that? Of course God loves you. No, may we never be that way. Have mercy on those who are doubting. I struggle. Does God really love me? Listen, weep with those who weep, mourn with those who mourn. Sit in that moment with your friend, your brother, and your sister. Pray with them, encourage them, and at the appropriate time, just point their sight back in history. Don't look now, don't look inward, look backwards to a man hanging on a tree, torn, ripped apart, beaten and bloodied. Look back to that. And if that image can be burned in our eyes and in our souls, then whenever we wonder about God's love for us, we can say, oh no, soul, 
we know God loves us. He loves us in the present because we know he released us in the past. Just like Shasta, wondering about if he's alone on his way on the journey. Where, where am I going? Darkness all around me. Suffering is my lot in life. And the king, the lion, the great lion shows up and says, I'm here and I know every trouble you've ever had because not one moment on your journey have you ever been alone. That is the encouragement that we take from these verses, from the entirety of the Bible, from the message of the gospel, and from the book of Revelation. Father, we thank you so much for the grace that we have in Jesus Christ, and we want to stand firm in his finished work right now. We want to remind our souls through song. We have reminded our souls through reading, through studying, through preaching, but now we want to agree with what we've just heard. We want to remind our souls through song. We want to affirm these truths to our hearts. When darkness seems to hide his face, we can rest because we've been given grace and peace. When all around my soul gives way, we can rest because he has made a covenant with us and he will never go back on that covenant. He then is all our hope and our stay. And he being our cornerstone alone gives us grace and peace, both now and forevermore.